You know, never in my life, I don't think I've ever met a single Christian who felt like they were really good at prayer. Um, I, I've known some who I thought that about them, but anytime you talk to somebody, they will always kind of tell you, you know, I just I don't know how good at prayer I am. I, I wish I was better at prayer. wish I was more consistent in my prayer. And even if you've grown up your entire life and been praying since you were a small child, there are moments and there are times that life happens and things come and you just go, I don't even know how to pray about this. I don't know what to say. I don't have the words. And so this morning we're going to launch into a new sermon series kind of that we're going to go through the month of June and we're just going to talk a lot about praying the Psalms. And we're just going to try and see how, what do the Psalms have to say about prayer and how do the Psalms teach us how we are supposed to pray? And how can they help us when it comes to moments when we don't know how to pray? And so we're going to talk about kind of a different number of those moments. And this morning, the, well, and this week, what we're going to ask is, man, how do we pray when we doubt? How do we pray when we are just filled with unbelief? Like the man in our call to worship, who we say, Lord, I believe, but I've got some doubts in the back of my mind. How do we pray when we're not really sure if God's word is true? How do we pray in those moments when we doubt and wonder if God really cares about us or if he's just totally forgotten us? That's what we're going to talk about this morning and when we can't even find those words. And so we're going to see in Psalm 73, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, what this psalm has to teach us about when we doubt, when we don't have the words, when we don't know what to say, we don't even know what to do. How can we pray in those moments? And we're going to find a man named Asaph in his prayer that was prayed when he was filled with plenty of his own doubts. And so this morning we're going to see three different ways that I think we must pray when we doubt. So we're going to look at three different ways that we can pray when we are filled with doubts. So if you're with me in your Bibles in Psalm 73 and, and you're able to, um, please go ahead and stand as we read from God's Word. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death and their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with their follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn their back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said this, I will speak. Thus, I will have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When the soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. 
Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, shall put an end to anyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would be here this morning, that you would help us. Lord, you would show us in your word how we are supposed to pray, even when we are filled with doubt. Would you teach us what only you can and give us ears to hear it? Pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can have a seat. So we're going to talk about three ways that I think this psalm teaches us how we're supposed to pray. And the first way is going to be, it's a little more general. It's kind of just going to set up the the series for you. But the first point is that we should pray the psalms. We should pray the psalms. Historically, Christians throughout our history have prayed the book of Psalms. And some have gone so far as to just call the psalms that the psalms is our prayer book. One of the church fathers, Athanasius, said that the Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because while most Scripture speaks to us, the Psalms actually speak for us, which I love that. And Bonhoeffer called the Psalms a children's primer that teaches us how to talk towards God and it trains our speech and our affections for Him. The Psalms, and especially as we pray it, it helps us, it aids us. And the church throughout its history has prayed the Psalms. For the first couple of centuries, the church was always praying the Psalms. In fact, they were also always singing the Psalms. They weren't worshiping or singing anything else that wasn't a Psalm for the most part. And I don't mean like they were singing songs just based on the Psalms. It was just, what number Psalm are we singing? Okay, 73. All right, here we go. Let's start singing. And that's what they sang. That is what they prayed. In monasteries and corporate prayers and believers at home and at church, they would encourage, hey, pray the Psalms and pray them continually. And so for much of our history, this tells us, well, believers thought there was something worthwhile in these Psalms. There was something worthwhile for us to gain by praying them. Our Lord and Savior Jesus prayed the Psalms. He prayed other prayers as well. We have many of those written, which I am so grateful for to hear the way that Jesus prayed, but we know that he also prayed the Psalms. He prayed them so much that even on the cross, his most difficult, darkest moment, what came out of his mouth was prayers from Psalms 22. So he had prayed them so much, he had them memorized. The Old Testament saints also prayed the Psalms. There's so many places you may notice in the Psalms that will have Hebrew words, and it may even have a little footnote at the bottom and just be like, uh, you know, we don't know what that means, some kind of musical something or other, or, you know, maybe it's something with prayer. We're removed enough, we don't know what those mean. But they knew what it meant. They didn't even feel the need to tell us what it was because they prayed the Psalms continually all the time. You have some psalms that were called psalms of ascent and psalms of descent. So there were certain songs and things that they prayed as they walked up to Jerusalem and towards the temple. That every time they're heading towards Jerusalem, they know, okay, well, this is the prayers that we pray. So they did this repeatedly. We should pray the psalms because when we pray the psalms, what we are actually doing is our voices joined with the voices of all of the believers and followers of Jesus throughout the ages 
who have prayed them before us. And we, we raise our voices as one mighty crowd. When, when you're praying the Psalms, you're praying alongside every believer who's lived before you. And you're also praying with the believers who may come after us if the Lord tarries. Would you imagine a, a prayer circle? Right? So, you know, imagine COVID's over, so we're all holding hands, and this is good, no one's wearing masks, and we're, we're all praying together. And in this prayer circle, right next to you, holding the hands with you, praying with you, is King David. And next to King David is Moses and his mother, Mir his sister Miriam. And on the other side of the circle, you have some of the reformers. You have Martin Luther and Calvin and John Knox and Zwingli. And you have Lottie Moon and you have Mary Magdala and Jesus, his mother. And they're all around you. And you see the apostles, Peter and James and John and Mark. In the center of the circle, leading your prayers as you're all praying with one voice is Jesus. As he leads you in praying the Psalms. Those same words that have been prayed throughout all of the ages. When we pray the Psalms, our voices is like being in that circle. As we all pray guided by Jesus. Words that we know are good to pray. We know they're good prayers. They've strengthened, they've encouraged the saints who have gone before us in their moments of doubt and their moments of darkness, and they can encourage us as well. That's why we pray the Psalms, so we can pray with one voice. I was listening to a, to a podcast with just two, two actors. There's nothing spiritual or theological or really Christian about it at all. It's just two actors I liked, and they were talking, so I was listening to it. And I was kind of struck because they transitioned and started talking about faith. So they're both Jews, but they're also really just both agnostic. And they started talking about their faith a little bit. And one of them, who is very agnostic and said, you know, he was pretty, but he was pretty sure he didn't even believe in any kind of God, definitely not the Jewish idea of God or of Jesus. But he would go on to describe, you know, he still really loved to pray some of those ancient prayers, to pray some of the Psalms. And he was like, you know, I, I don't know why, but it's like when I pray them, he described it as if there's like a groove that it just feel there's something special about praying something that people have thought was good to pray for so long. I just found that fascinating. That here you had somebody who doesn't really believe in Jesus yet notice, hey, you know, maybe there's something about saying the same words other people have said. And they didn't go far enough, but they, they got something. So we need to pray the Psalms. We need to pray the entire Psalms. Because the Psalms teaches us how to pray. You have 150 different prayers. Usually when we think about prayer, like I want to study prayer, how should I pray? We go to the Lord's Prayer. Good place. Definitely probably start there. It's not the only prayer in the Bible. You have long, other long prayers of Jesus. You have that man's prayer this morning. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a wonderful prayer, especially when you doubt. You also have 150 different prayers in the book of Psalms that will teach you how to pray. It teaches us the kind of things we should say to God kinds of things we can say to God that maybe we didn't think we could. There's some stuff in here we're going to talk about in a minute that doesn't sound like the normal things we would say in our own prayers. It's also good to pray the Psalms that keeps us from praying our, pray, our favorite kinds of prayers. We all have our favorite prayers, don't we? 
We have things, we have phrases, we have stuff we repeat. We notice that when other people do it, we don't notice as much for ourselves. Or somebody maybe you can think of, or I'm sure we've all met someone who repeats a word over and over, and as soon as you notice, you can't stop. Then you start counting, you're like, wow, they said, Lord, Father, 30 times. We only prayed for two minutes. How does that happen? Right? We all do things like that. Right? Or you notice, even I pray some of the same things before I preach every single morning. The words are slightly different, but you'll catch phrases and things that are exactly the same. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good. There are things that we should do that. But also, when we pray the Psalms, it forces us to pray things that wouldn't normally come to our mouths to pray. It forces it stretches us. It helps us. It aids us. That's why we need to pray the Psalms. And we need to pray these written words as well as praying our own words. Too often we make it like this dichotomy of, no, 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 I just, it needs to be special if it's really between me and God, so I should just pray whatever comes to my heart. Well, you know, there's times that nothing comes to my heart. There's times I'm wrecked with doubt. I don't know what to say to God. And so if I'm just going to pray my own words, then there's times I just don't pray because I don't know what to say. There's also times if all you do is pray written words, then you can forget. Those words are supposed to help you, so then you can also pray with them. Your words need to match them, need to come after them. And so we need to do both of these things. They both help us pray. I think I'm teaching little Calvin how to pray now, right? He's two, so we pray before every meal, we pray at night. Before every meal, we pray kind of the same thing. If you've had dinner with us, you've probably heard me lead him in this short little prayer. It's our liturgy or our habit, right? So we just fold our hands and, dear Jesus, thank you for food. Thank you for family. Thank you for the cross. Amen. And he gets excited to pray it. Not really because I think he's that excited about God. He's mostly excited that he's going to eat. I think. But it's good, right? I need to teach him how to pray like that because he's two. It would be cruel to expect a two-year-old to come up with the right words to talk to God on his own and never teach him how to do it. And so we do that all the time. He needs to hear that prayer thousands and thousands and thousands of times as he grows up. Until he can learn, hey, this is the kind of things we say to God. But you know what I also need to say, those? Because there are many times as I do it that I am struck by the simplicity of the words. And reminded, you know what I do? Just need to be grateful for this food that I have. I do need to be grateful for this family. Wow, yeah, I, I do need to be thankful for the gospel every single time I talk to Jesus. So we need both. And that's why we need to pray the Psalms. Because it helps us. It guides us. That's really the, the crux of this series is that. If you get nothing else in the next four weeks, it is just that. We should pray the Psalms all the time. Join them with our prayers. So it's really a setup for the series, and that's kind of what the next couple of weeks will be. But now I want to move and let, let's talk about Psalm 73 specifically and see, well, how does this psalm help us when we doubt? Well, this is a one, this is a good psalm to pray when you're doubting. If you're filled with doubt, turn to Psalm 73 and just pray it. And if that's all you have, then close it and come back to it later. But the second way that we can pray is that we should pray our doubts honestly. The second thing, or we should honestly pray our doubts. We need to honestly pray them. This psalm is incredibly honest. Problem for many of us, when we start doubting God, we don't go to God to talk about it. Do we? We start doubting him. We think, is he even listening? Does he even care? What do we do? We think, I just need to ignore him then because I guess he's not paying attention. We start to feel angry. 
And so we think, you know, that's probably not a good place to talk to God. Well, the psalm starts off, it's so interesting. The psalm starts off wonderful in verse 1. Throws you off if you didn't know where the psalm was going. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, yeah, that's great. Wonderful praise, God's goodness, His faithfulness to His people. But as for me, my feet had slipped. What is he saying? Well, God's really good to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, that, that ain't me today. I'm not feeling very pure in heart, God. I'm falling way off of your path. Because walking is a metaphor used over and over in Scripture for living a life with God. That's why we call it our walk with Jesus. It's just something that they, they use. And so he's saying right away, he's like, I don't know how good this prayer is going to be, God. I, I'm slipping. I'm falling down. Well, and what's causing him to, to doubt? He names it right away in three, for I was envious of the arrogant. And when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, he's admitting, I am filled with envy, God. And you notice he doesn't say, I'm filled with envy, please forgive me. I know this is really bad and I, I want to be better. He just says, I, he goes on to describe his envy in pretty good detail. He says, I'm envious of the arrogant, of these prideful jerks all around me. And you skip ahead, if you look at verse 13, he just lays it all out there exactly how he's feeling. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Okay, here's a, a paraphrase of that. What a waste of time to follow you, God. What a joke. Here I am suffering. Look across at my neighbor, and he's prosperous. He's got everything that I wish I had. And he ain't following you. What am I doing? Why, why did I waste my time with this, God? Why in the world have I been following you? That's an honest prayer. That's very honest. That's probably not the kind of thing that many of us have honestly said to God. There's moments maybe we've thought it. There's moments we felt it. But I, I doubt that there's definitely not on a Wednesday night prayer and share where it's your turn to pray and you feel led to say that aloud. Okay? I don't think, I haven't heard anyone say that yet. I don't know if someone said that before. I really doubt it. But the psalmist admits that. He honestly says, that God, I doubt it's even worth it to follow after you. And he lays his hair, heart just bare before God. All through 3 through 13 is just laying out all of his jealousy. The first thing he's super jealous, he's jealous of the easiness that these other people seem to have in their life that he doesn't. Saying they have no pains until death. Their life is easy. Their life isn't filled with suffering and constant pain like mine is. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are in verse 5. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They don't have all the trouble that I seem to be having all the time. All these other people who seem to be following you have all this trouble. But why do these arrogant people have no trouble, God? Trouble's just following me around. There's always another bill. There's always another problem. My kids always did something wrong that I had to come up and fix or figure out or help them. They're waking me up in the middle of the night. God, what is this? Verse 12, behold, these wicked are always at ease, and they increase in riches. They're just kicking back in their lazy boys, God. And money just keeps rolling more and more into their bank account. Well, it just keeps rolling out and out and out of mine. What in the world? Why am I giving you money? You ain't giving me anything back. I thought I was supposed to give. Pastor told me if I did that, you'd be faithful, you'd give back. Well, I've been giving a lot. You haven't given me anything, God. Why? Why in vain? I've kept my heart clean. 
Why are you allowing this, God? Psalmist is jealous of their prosperity. This is why he talks about fatness. He's not just being cruel or mean. This is like a symbol of riches at that point in time. Okay, you don't get to be fat unless you got a lot of money. Okay, because food costs money. You don't have a lot of food options. You don't have a lot of restaurants like we do. You're driving down 81. You got all sorts of options. They didn't really have that back then in ancient Israel, right? You got to get your own food. So if you're going to eat, you're going to eat a lot of meat to get fat off of that. You got to have a lot of cows that you don't mind killing just for yourself. It also kind of implies you're not out working very hard. You're not out in the fields in the hot sun every day. You're not out in the vineyard. You're not out doing all the work. You're sitting at home in the shade in your house, propping your feet up at ease while everyone else is doing your hard work because you've got enough money to pay them. Okay, it took a lot of effort, generally speaking, back then. So it's kind of this symbol of their prosperity, of life treating them well. And he goes a little extreme in verse 7. Is their eyes are swelling out through fatness, and their hearts are overflowing with folly. He's just going extreme and saying, look, they, they have so much wealth, and so fast, like their eyes are just popping out of their head, God. He's being very extreme in this metaphor here. It's not a very nice prayer to pray, is it? That's definitely not something we would pray out in public and let someone else hear us say. But the psalmist feels comfortable saying that to God. He feels comfortable being honest, of laying his heart out and saying, God, this is how angry I am. This is how much I doubt that you're even listening to me. He's laying out complaint after complaint after complaint. He's not holding anything back. You don't get the sense of that. He's also jealous of their blatant wickedness. Just of the way they just seem to get to sin and do whatever they want, and God doesn't punish them. Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace, and violence covers them as a garment. He's saying their pride is so obvious. They're such an arrogant jerk. They might as well be wearing massive bling or this big old necklace that's gaudy, and everyone can see it. Because everyone knows when they see them, they go, that person is just an arrogant jerk. Look how prideful they are. And their violence is like a garment. They, they are, their abuse of others, violently or not, is so out in the open that everyone can see it. It's like a giant fur coat like Gruella DeVille or something. In verse 8, they stop and they're speaking with malice loftily. They're threatening opposition. They are just going and telling everyone how abusive they're going to be. They're not sinning in secret. They're not scared. They're doing this arrogantly, pridefully, where everybody can see. Nine, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts throughout the earth. They're also, these people, God, they're speaking against you. They're talking about how dumb you are, how they doubt you even exist. Oh, if God was really real, why doesn't he just stop me? Ha, ha, ha. They're saying things like this. God, what are you doing? Don't you care? That's how they act. And why are you blessing them, God? Why do they get to increase? All they're doing is sinning against you. Yet I make one mistake, I do one thing. Now I've got to suffer all these consequences for my sin, God. That doesn't seem very fair. Why am I racked with guilt? Why do I have to go back and forth and feel guilty over all the sin that I've done and repent and then I still feel shame and I'm trying to figure this out? And yet they're just doing whatever they want and it seems fine. Maybe I should just do that. Maybe I should stop caring about following you. That's his prayer. That's a lot of doubt. Sure, if we're honest, we've all felt some of that doubt, if not all of it, at different moments in our life. 
We felt places where we wondered, is God really listening? Does God really care? Man, why am I working so hard? I could have gained so much wealth, done so many other things if I just did whatever I wanted. And yet I didn't because I was trying to follow God. And I thought he was going to bless me. And yet here I am. I'm not feeling very blessed. The reality is that God already knows all of that. Right? If he's God, he's really sovereign, he really knows everything in the universe. He knew everything you would think before Genesis 1. He spoke the earth into existence. So you are not surprising him with your doubt. You're not surprising him with your anger. He's not shocked by it. You're not really even keeping it secret. He can see it. I can tell when Calvin is mad at me. It's not that hard. He's too. He can't hide it very well. You can't hide your doubt any better than he can from God because he knows you. He sees you. What he also wants is he wants you to talk to him. He wants you to tell him. There's nothing you can tell the God of the universe that he has not heard before. There's nothing you could say that would shock him or make him appalled. But there's a large part of us that doesn't want to pray like this because we recognize there's some things that are, ooh, that's the wrong attitude, right? I, I shouldn't say things like this. So I just won't. I might feel it. I might think it, but, it, but it's wrong to say it. Or it's wrong to pray that to God. I'll just think it to myself over and over and just keep running through my Rolodex of all of my issues and problems. And we'll tell ourselves, you know, I'll just wait till my heart's good. I'll wait maybe tomorrow. Like, I'll wake up, have a good devotional, have my coffee. I'll feel better. Then I'll, I'll, I'll try and pray again there because I'm going to be in a better place so then me and God can chat once I'm feeling a little more righteous. The reality is on our best day, without Jesus, all of our words before God are really garbage anyway. That we always have conflicting emotions. We always have hidden blind spots. There's always sin in our life that we don't even recognize how wrong it is and how offensive it is to God. So I'm not really sure there's ever a moment by yourself on your own where you're really righteous enough now that you can talk to God and all the words that come out of your mouth are going to be really good. So I don't know why you're waiting for that. You just need to honestly pray and talk with Him. The only way we can ever get into a place where we're righteous enough that now we can talk to God is because of the blood of Jesus and is because of the gospel. Because the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross washes away all of our sin. And when Jesus died on that cross and he came back from the grave, he didn't just do that to forgive us of our sins so that one day when we die, we can go and be with him in heaven until he returns. It doesn't just forgive our sins and give us a blank slate and, okay, now go try again. Don't mess it up this time. Good luck. No, it washes us away. And then he actually, big $5 theological word, he imputes his righteousness to us. What does that mean? It means he considers us righteous. God does. If you put your faith in Jesus, you are considered righteous before God. Not because you did your devotional this morning, not because you came to church even though you didn't really want to, not because you're really trying hard to pay attention even though you just want to fall asleep because maybe you stayed up too late. No, you're considered righteous because of what Jesus did for you. And that's the only reason. And because of that, you can pray honestly before him. You don't have to wait to some magical day when you think you cleaned yourself up. Jesus already did that. 
Jesus is our mediator between us and God. God hears us and we can pray because of what Jesus did. And what Jesus is doing right now, standing before the throne of heaven, interceding for us. He is already at this moment praying. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. It's only because of the blood of Jesus and because of what Jesus has done that we even have the ability for the God and creator of the universe to hear the words that come out of our mouth. Now because of that, we can pray and we can tell him, God, I just doubt if you're even listening. And you know what? Jesus allows God to hear that. And he listens. And God hears us. So we need to pray our doubts honestly. But what's next? It's good to pray our doubts. We should do that, but you don't necessarily want to stop there. There may be moments in life, though, that's all that you can do. You can't even finish the rest of the psalm. You can only pray the first 15 verses. Well, please pray that. Don't just not talk to Jesus or talk to God. Uh, The next point, point number three, it's going to be put on my teacher hat. I'm going to give you a big word, but you're smart. I know you can handle it, and then I'll define it for you so you can write something else instead. But, but I, I believe you can handle this. You don't have to be afraid of big words. Is we need to pray eschatologically. We need to pray eschatologically. What do I mean by that? If you don't want to try and write that down, what I mean is we need to pray with the end in mind. You need to pray with the end in mind. Eschatologically, it just means the, the last things, the end times, the end of the story. So when we pray, we shouldn't just pray our doubts, but we also should pray thinking about what the end of the story is. The psalm shifts right in verse 17. 16, he said, you know, I thought of how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. It is weary to sit and doubt. Doubt wears you out. He says, God, I'm trying to figure this out. I just don't even know what to do. Until... Verse 17, I went to the sanctuary of God. So I didn't know where else to go, God, so I went to your house to talk to you. And I knocked on your door. I walked in. And in God's house, then I discerned their end. When he went into the presence of God, he thought about, wait, what's the end of the story? How does this all end? None of us are at the end of our stories yet. Or somewhere in the middle, we don't know exactly when the end may come. For some of us, we might be like the psalmist. We have no idea what's going on in the middle of the story. You think of a a book or maybe a television show or a movie you've watched sometime where it starts to get really dark and really bad, and maybe even some of the characters you really like just got killed off, and you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. i got to pause here. i got to know, how is this going to end? Is this going to end and I'm just going to be depressed and mad and wonder why in the world did I waste all my time watching this? Or is this going to have a good ending? Is all the pain and suffering I'm experiencing right now, reading or watching this, going to be worth something at the end? That's something we can ask. It's just like, it can be like that for us in life. Where we look and we can get too frustrated. We look at all the evil in the world or all the things going on wrong. And we go, God, where are you? What what is happening here? thought you were God. I thought you were in charge. It it surely can't be this bad without you doing something. That's the way it is now, but it's not the way it will be in the end. At the end of the story, when Jesus returns in glory... When he comes in all of his might, 
when all the nations will fall down on their faces and acknowledge, Jesus, you are God. And Jesus will set up his kingdom and rule and live among us. And when that king is sitting on his throne, then comes the final judgment. And he will bring justice and judgment. And that justice is bad news for the wicked. It's good news for those who are righteous because of Jesus. And it's bad news for others. And verse 18, truly you have set them in slippery places. Thinking about these arrogant people he's so jealous of now. And you make them fall to a ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. One day the wicked will be swept away in judgment. And he recognizes and he finally thinking of the end realizes. Okay these arrogant prideful violent murderers seem like they're getting away with everything. Can't someone make this right? And so, oh, man, they're not going to get away with it. Justice is coming. Jesus is coming. And he's going to fix this when he gets here. Their prosperity at the moment is nothing exciting. It's nothing to be jealous of. It is just a slippery place that is going to trip them up and make them fall into ruin. And in fact, we see that God's delay of this justice of this coming, of the judgment where he allows wicked people like many of us were before Jesus, allows us to prosper, allows people to experience blessings that they do not deserve. It is not because God is unjust. It's actually his grace that he delays this judgment. It is gracious that God doesn't destroy sinners right now. The only it is grace that judgment is delayed. The fact that God allows any human being to exist without sending them straight to hell for their sins and their offense to him is grace. Every second that is delayed is grace. And it's delayed, why? Not because God is cruel, but because he's gracious and because there's an escape from this judgment. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish, you shall put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. If you look at the end of the story and see justice coming, it will be so horrible and awful and terrifying that when it comes, I don't think any of us will complain and wish it would have come sooner. We'll be grateful that God delayed every second because of his grace. So we need to pray with this end in mind. When we pray and we doubt, we need to look at the end of the story and at the coming of Jesus. And part of that is not good news for the wicked. It is not good news for those who don't know Jesus. So how in the world do you escape this judgment? In light of the horror that is to come, which is horrifying, the idea that everyone will perish, destroyed in a moment and swept away by terrors. What can you do? I'm reminded of some old videos the government put out during the 1950s. Maybe some of you may remember these with uh, Bert the Turtle warning children. It's kind of during the Cold War and the nuclear bombs. It's saying, okay, you know, just in case there's an atom bomb, duck and cover, kids. Just put your heads under your desks, uh, get into your shell like Bert the Turtle, and, you know, then, then you, you might be safe. You'll be okay. 
And it's funny to kind of watch back now, 70 years after the fact, and go, how foolish is that to think that you could escape the fury and the horror of an atom bomb by hiding underneath a little cheaply made wooden desk? Things that that could keep you safe. Maybe you get really brave like Indiana Jones and you hide in a fridge and think that will keep you safe. No. Why? Because if you're close to that, there's no escape. That's the most destructive thing that we've been able to create thus far as human beings. There's no way to escape that if you're too close. Well, the coming and judgment of Jesus is going to be even more terrifying and devastating than any atomic or nuclear blast ever could be. There's no duck and cover. There's no shelter you could build. The only place that you could run to escape that coming judgment is the refuge of Jesus. Verse 28, but for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That when the bombs of life are dropped, God is the place that I will run to to be safe. It is the only refuge. It is the only place that we can go for safety. It is the only place we can go to escape the coming judgment is the feet of Jesus. At the cross, Jesus endured all of that coming punishment that any of us do deserve. And he did it. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves you. And he came back to life and he offers refuge and salvation to any who will come to him. That judgment is awful and it is terrifying, but there is an escape. But there's only one escape. And that escape is belief in Jesus. But he doesn't just come to offer us safety. It's a poor vision of Christianity that thinks that it's just a get out of hell free card and we get to go to heaven and that's it. Verse 28, or verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire before you. Jesus is coming for us as believers is not something that we have to be fearful of or scared of, but it is something we can look forward to and celebrate because it will be glorious. And because the one that we desire and who will fulfill all of the desires of our heart better than anything on earth ever has or ever could will be here and be with us. So we can pray looking towards that day. We pray with the end in mind when our life doesn't seem to make sense in the moment. We can know, you know what, God, I don't know what the next chapter will be. I don't know what the next decade will be. I don't even know what tomorrow or the next moment will be. Don't like what it is now. I wish you would fix it. wish you would fix it right now. But what I do know, God, is that at the end, you will fix it. And at the end, it will be worth it. It might not feel very worth it to follow you, Jesus, today. And you know what? Tomorrow, it still might not feel very worth it. But what I do know is when you come or when I finally die, whenever that is, then it will have been worth it. So we pray even as we doubt, thinking about the end. That is where our hope is 
We can pray in hope knowing that one day Jesus will come and bring justice. That all of the wrongs in the, the world that we see, the ones that frustrate us today, and the millions of other ones that we are too blind to even notice or see in our limited capacity, Jesus will correct all of them. In my favorite verse in this psalm, it's one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. It's one that I, I've memorized and held on to. Is verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. You felt your flesh or your heart fail. You felt your faith fail. You felt your strength fail. You felt like you didn't even have the, the capacity to pray if you wanted to. You pull up your Bible and think, you know, I need to read this. And you flip up on a page and you just close it because you're just defeated. Our hearts and our flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love this verse because it acknowledges our tendency to failure. I often fail. I repeatedly fail. I have failed much this morning and will fail again before the day is done. My heart will fail. My faith will not be enough. There will be doubts and there will be things that will come into your life that will wreck you and will destroy you. Your heart and your flesh may fail, but God can be your strength and your portion forever. You may fail, but God will not. You may fail again and again and again and again, but God will not. You don't need your own strength. You don't need your own faith. You can pray like that father and say, Lord, I believe, but it's not very good. Please help all of the unbelief, but there's a lot of it. And that's enough. Why? Because God doesn't need your faith. You need God's faith. He's our inheritance, our portion. That's an inheritance. That's at the end, the glory and the riches that we have waiting for us. When we doubt, when we struggle, when we wonder if God is even listening, when we don't have the strength or any kind of faith anymore, God can be our strength. Your heart and your flesh may fail, but He is the strength of your heart and your portion forever. So this morning we've looked at three different ways we can pray. The first way, again, is just pray the Psalms. Tell you when you doubt, pray Psalm 73. And the second way we can pray when we doubt is we can honestly just pray our doubts. Be honest about it. Tell God how you feel. All the things that you feel like you can't say, just go ahead and say it because you've already thought it anyway and you may as well be honest with God about it. And finally, pray eschatologically. Pray with the end in mind. Pray acknowledging, Lord, I don't have the strength today, but I know at the end of this, you do. So as a close, again, I just want to encourage you to pray the Psalms. Pray this Psalm. There are other ones that are also good to pray when you doubt. This one's my personal favorite. This is a Psalm that I have returned to often in my life. Anytime I doubt, I wonder if God really is listening. I go back to this psalm and I just read it and I pray it over and over. Sometimes I don't even get all the way through it because my heart and my flesh is too weak. But when I pray this, I realize, hey, wait, I'm not alone. Other believers throughout time have felt just as down and weak and lowly as I have. And when I pray it, God gives words 
to my doubts. And when I pray it, even when I'm reminded, even though I may fail over and over and over and over and over again, God will not. God will not. As we pray, I'll invite the worship team to come up and lead us in worship. Lord, I thank you that you are our strength. Lord, I thank you that our faith is not built on our own strength, that it's not built on our lack of doubt, but our faith is built on your faith. Lord, I pray that you will help us and you will aid us. Lord, would you teach us how to pray, even when we doubt, even when we have no strength left in these old tired bones. Lord, as our heart and flesh fails, would you remind us that you are the strength of our hearts? Would you be our strength? We are too weak. We are too frail. We cannot live. We can't even pray without you. Would you be our strength, Jesus? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship through song? It's always good to just bow down at Jesus' feet. There's no better place to be. Uh, before I read our benediction, one, one quick announcement. I know there's a, a prayer event going on at Fuquay Park today, kind of two through four. It's a bunch of different churches um, in our community gathering together just to, to pray. I don't know a ton of details, but I know it's there and the churches are going to be praying in town. It's always a good thing when God's people can gather together um, as one community. So just wanted to let you know about that, two to four at Fuquay Park. And our benediction for this month is from the book of Ephesians. It says, peace to you, to the brothers and sisters in love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. Go in peace.